Why is it important that we we invent, or not invent, but invest in our deterrents, these deterrent things? And all the deterrents don't have to come out of the um, the defense industrial base. We need a balanced portfolio of things that are purely defense, uh, and we use them. We use them when we, when we, when we have to. But then we have all these commercial capabilities. From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is The Downlink, a podcast about the intersection of space, the space business, and defense. Not just what's over the horizon, but what's happening above it. I'm your host, Laura Winter. Hey there, Downlink listeners. This week, I was in Albuquerque, New Mexico to attend what has really become my favorite space meeting, the State of the Space Industrial Base Conference and Workshop. The United States Space Force and the Air Force Research Laboratory underwrite it, but it's the Defense Innovation Unit and New Mexico's space business incubator, New Space Nexus, that organize it and run the week-long meeting. The State of the Space Industrial Base is not not the usual industry conference with talking heads and deal-making in the exhibition hall. This meeting in Albuquerque for industry is the place to be to address the challenges and to make an impact on space and defense policy. The discussions are off the record and sometimes raw, but the ideas for solutions to the challenges to commercial and defense space operations are captured in a report used by legislators and by policymakers. You bet Chinese and Russian aggression loomed large. But participants also wrangled over in-space servicing, assembly and manufacturing, or ISAM, workforce development, and finance. The man behind this effort to candidly inform national defense and space policy is Brigadier General Steve Buto, who goes by the call sign Bucky. He is the director of the Defense Innovation Unit's space portfolio. This week, I had a unique opportunity to sit down with Bucky to understand his priorities and what drives him. Here's our conversation. Hi, Bucky. It's great to finally have you on the podcast. It's great to be here. You know, before we start talking about the state of the space industrial base, take a moment and tell us a bit about yourself. You know, what you do, where you do it, you know, what you're working on now. Mm-hmm. Well, um, I'm a father uh, with uh, two kids, one uh, my own and another one that we kind of adopted along the way. I grew up in Silicon Valley. I went to school there. I graduated from San Jose State University with uh, physics and astronomy. And through that, I actually got to work at NASA Ames Research Center through that experience. So I, uh, I, I worked there and I got to meet uh, luminaries at that time, uh, like Carl Sagan, um, uh, Jill Tarter, who actually the movie Contact was based on her life as part of the SETI Institute. Wow. I got a uh, job at SETI Institute and uh, doing research for exploring really the origins of life in the universe. So I worked at Ames with other scientists and engineers on concepts for how we would analyze the regolith on Mars. And it was a very exciting time, and this is mostly during the 1990s. I had, uh, uh, in the early 90s, I became an officer and got through pilot training and was a reservist doing combat rescue. So I, I had this great life where I, I flew airplanes. Which and, kind? Uh, special operations airplanes, so some of them you're probably familiar with. So the uh, MC-130 uh, Combat uh, Shadow and HC-130, today we call it the Combat King. 
but uh, they're, both of them are very similar in that they refuel helicopters, they can deploy special operations teams, and uh, very important, they can do long-haul rescue operations. So uh, uh, they're the airplanes that will always fly when we have astronauts uh, going up in space or when the space shuttle would be launching or returning. We have rescue forces all over the world to do the really um, difficult operations, which is how do you go well beyond the range of the Coast Guard or go places where the Navy doesn't, doesn't operate. And um, so, I have, so this, my two lives were really flying uh, with the Air Force uh, through the Air National Guard in California and, and then working at NASA as a contractor, ultimately with the SETI Institute. All that changed on 9-11. You know, and what wound up happening is my life became really focused on the military side. Uh, I was encouraged a little bit to do that also because the our research uh, funding was was really kind of atrophied, a lot of resources going into into defense, and so I spent literally almost the next 15 years uh, as as a full time Air Force uh, pilot doing personnel recovery, combat rescue, and personnel recovery is as the broader mission set in places like Iraq, Afghanistan, Horn of Africa, other places around the globe. And I raised uh, through the ranks. I was a wing commander. I really enjoyed that. And then I went to a joint assignment. Uh, and, and ultimately, I found myself at the Defense Innovation Unit. Uh, and it was called the DIUX, uh, Defense Innovation Unit Experimental at the time. But the reason that happened is while I was wing commander at Moffett Field, uh, which is right next to Nessa Ames, in Silicon Valley, a good friend of mine... It's a very storied... A um, very storied place, yes. yes. But a good friend uh, who was a, a retired general who was a mentor of mine, uh, Guy Walsh, he was working at U.S. Cyber Command. And he called me up and he said, Bucky, uh, my call sign, right? Bucky, we have a, a problem. He says, we keep buying commercial technology for cyber. And when we field it, uh, all the people, the reservists who come in say, what are you doing? This is all obsolete. This is all obsolete technology. We need we need the best tools available. And, they, and the best tools available were in Silicon Valley. The problem was the best companies in cyber didn't know anything about doing business with the government. You know, since the um, origins of Silicon Valley were really government, industry, and academia came together, uh, in, in the, especially in the aftermath of World War II, uh, it, they became quite divergent. So uh, by the time that um, the first part of this century, it was almost, uh, the DOD was almost a, a bad name in places like Silicon Valley because the government likes to come in and, and promise things and not deliver or take a company with a good business plan and divert them off to do something else. So the Cyber Command was looking for an opportunity to establish a point of presence in Silicon Valley from which they could do, they could learn and build relationships and, and get cutting edge companies to actually um, compete uh, for contracts uh, that they could support their mission. So I got very excited about this. And, um, and if you live in some place like Silicon Valley, we say it's large Bay Area, but it's a very small Silicon Valley. So uh, the web of investors and companies that are really doing interesting things. And um, my role at NASA Ames was very much tied in with some of that because the storied history of a lot of the companies that, uh, including Planet, that spun out of NASA. So, uh, so I thought that was a great, a, a great task to take on. And uh, what was interesting is when through command changes at Cyber Command, 
there was an opportunity for the Secretary of Defense, the new Secretary of Defense, Ash Carter, to find out about this. And his first response was, I've been thinking about this for a long time. I wrote about this almost 20 years ago. I want to do this, but why are we just doing it for cyber? We should be doing it for everything, right? And um, uh, even back then, uh, Secretary Carter recognized uh, the need to really do more with the commercial sector. Why? Because they spend four times more on research and development than the U.S. government does today, which is a really phenomenal number. So he started uh, DIUX. My boss at the time said, you better get back down there. Uh, and so I had an opportunity to go back. And then um, and, and as we organized DIUX and we started setting up portfolios, uh, I put my hand up and said I want to do space because of my, my background. So since 2016 forward, I've been doing, I've been the director of the space portfolio at the Defense Innovation Unit and, uh, and really having a, a great time with it. You know, a lot of folks in this audience, you know, have heard of the Defense Innovation Unit or, or DIU. I'd like you to explain, though, to the uninitiated, you know, how the DIU fits into the defense and space ecosystem. Mm-hmm. You know, what is the very particular role that it plays? Mm-hmm. Well, I'll tell you our mission statement, and then I'll explain what it means. So our we, we do three things. We accelerate the adoption of commercial technology to transform our military capabilities and capacity. And third, we want to build and grow the national security innovation base, which is really the combination of our defense industrial base, which as if you've been paying attention to over decades, it's been shrinking, right? It's been shrinking and consolidating. Oh yeah, not, William LePent spoke it, about it a couple yeah, of weeks ago. It's not, yeah. it's, it's not healthy. It, it, it shouldn't be shrinking. But more importantly, is is the um, the rest of the commercial industrial base that in times of war really becomes part of a, our our strategic capability and capacity to do all the amazing things that we've read about, you know, in World War II. Um, so so uh, you know we're not we're not beating the drums of war, but I, but it's important that we prepare. The more prepared we are uh, for conflict, the less likely it'll be. Right. This is a key part of strategy. Okay, so those are the three things that we do. What is DIU really? Uh, I like to say that we're facilitators because in order for me to do my job, I have to find a really interesting commercial company. And you know know there's many of them. A lot of the interesting companies are in quote-unquote stealth mode. They're not publicly disclosed yet, right? And, and, And that's a strategic advantage for them to kind of um, it gives them some buffer the so that they, they can you That's know, right. get it together, and then when they hit the market, they own the market. That's right. And so so part of our job is is really understanding what these companies are doing, what their strategy is, and to appreciate how we could actually use the capabilities that they're developing in, in the spectrum of national security. And the other side that we do is we have to work within the Department of Defense and find DOD partners who are willing to step out front and say, you know what, I'm actually interested in seeing how this commercial solution can solve my problem. Well, the first thing you have to do is you have to understand the problem. And, you know, maybe maybe the problem, and uh, maybe is a horrible example, but if uh, people don't socialize with me very well and say, well, it's really their problem. Well, the real problem might be that they don't like my cologne, <laughs> right? <laughs> Yes. So it's so it's really okay. it, I mean it's a very simple thing, but I mean so curating the problem, understanding what the real problem is, is is very important part of 
of us getting things right. And then what we like to do is say, well, let's just take your problem statement and give that problem to industry. And, and, and the more in an unclassified way and, and actually give them the wicked problem, right? Because you know what really smart people love to do? Not make better web advertisement. Yes. <laughs> this, right? The smartest people in America, they like to solve wicked problems. And, you know, and that, that's actually the real story behind DIU because what we've, the unintended consequence of doing our mission is that we've enabled the smartest, most talented people from all walks of life, very diverse crowd, to actually come in and solve an amazing problem was something that was that we never really thought about. Because in, in the military, we were very regimented about, about how we would solve a problem. Uh, and and we, have, we really have extraordinary labs. We have extraordinary companies. Look at the F-35. I mean, and, and some of the other things that you see, uh, DARPA, look at, you know, DARPA on a good day is disrupting constantly, right? Um, the, the whole evolution of the internet and, and the digital economy, which is actually about 10, 10 to 12% of our national GDP today. Who thought about that 30 years ago? So the, so the, so the, uh, and obviously not me, otherwise I'd be rich. Well, and we're, <laughs> but we're using it today. Exactly. We're using it today to, to, to do what, uh, I think you, you do very well, which is the storytelling, right? So I, to me, it's really exciting, but it really starts with identifying a problem and creating, an, creating a way so that the, I go back to my cyber uh, command uh, story. Their problem was is that the, the commercial sector was inaccessible to them, largely because we expect commercial companies to go through a myriad of, of different uh, government systems to, uh, to compete for contracts. And it, there's no interest. It's wickets. Yeah, it's That's tough. Right. So I don't like the term marriage maker because, uh, because uh, it's like, well, do, we'll just put them together and then we part ways. It's more involved than that. So, Would you call it a marriage counselor? Well, it, 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 sometimes it can be. Uh, and we can, I'll, I'll give some examples about that. Because you know what really good companies do? They pivot. Um, really good companies recognize uh, they're, they're vested in an outcome. They're not vested in the path to an outcome. The government doesn't like that. They, the government likes to have a well-defined path, a deliberately planned path to an outcome. So, you know, how you build a house is not the same way that you develop software, right? And so you know the Scrum the, uh, or the, uh, I don't even know what Scrum is, but it's really the agile approach to developing software. Uh, and, and, the, um, and, and it's, it's widely used across the commercial sector. We still have systems in DoD that still use old software uh, development uh, methods and capabilities, but we're getting a lot better. You know, we finally discovered the cloud, and, and, we're, and we're moving <laughs> to other things. And, and I say that tongue-in-cheek. And we, of course, we, under, we understand the cloud. We use the cloud. But, the, but really using commercial capabilities at scale is really what DIU is all about. And, so, uh, and, and with scale, guess what we do if it's commercial? We save a lot of money. We're not just improving national security. We're improving economic security or economic prosperity. And, um, and, we, and we do, the most important thing is we bring these two separate worlds together uh, in, a, in a meaningful way. So we have, um, we actually have the best companies in America working with our, the best defense companies in America, or with or without actually, and, and, and actually responding to not the needs of, of an acquisition 
official who's seven times removed from an end user, but to go to those Marines, the soldiers, sailor, airmen, and 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 now guardians and uh, that are out there and others, and say, what is your wicked problem? How do we how do we how do we use commercial off the shelf capabilities to give you uh, a, a an asymmetric advantage uh, and and do it in a way that we're not just you know dual use is kind of an overused term, but we have things that we use in uh, in our everyday life, like our smartphones. But then there's also a way that we can apply that technology to solve problems uh, in during uh, any any type of conflict um, that that may uh, that may emerge. Things that are not one hit wonders. That's right, and you know, and and one hit wonders will happen. But if it's really good, then eventually the marketplace will give you choice. Which is, and that's resiliency. So, so it's very, very, very difficult, you know. And there's a lot of economics uh, involved with all this. And one of the things we don't do very well in government is really look at a problem through an economic lens. Uh, but you know, for that economic security uh, aspect of national security, we're getting much better. You know, now we're here in Albuquerque for what's really your meeting. It's the DIU State of the Space Industrial Base Conference and Workshop. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure that you're aware that the state of the defense industrial base is a bit of a hot topic on the Hill and in the Mm -hmm. Pentagon. So I'm going to ask you a bit of what I kind of feel is a wee bit of an unfair question, but what is the state of the space industrial base? How are we doing? Well, um, I'll, I'll be. I'll give you an honest assessment, uh, and I'll start like this. So the the space industrial base really addresses two markets. It addresses a government market, which includes defense, but also intelligence. Uh, it includes um, exploration, NASA, civil space, right? So national security space, uh, which is defense and intelligence, civil space, which is NASA. Um, Weather, NOAA. We have there's lots of stakeholders in in, in space, I, and I'm I'm leaving a lot of a lot of them out. Um, and so I I if for those specific things, uh, that's a good healthy uh, marketplace with a lot of incumbents, and and we've been that been doing uh, things for for many years. And we have other aspects. Uh, we have we have uh, laboratories. Uh, some some being government laboratories. Some of them being um, laboratories uh, tied to academic institutions. One of my favorites is John Hopkins Yale Applied Physics Lab. Wow, I mean it's like they you know MIT Lincoln Labs, uh, Jet Propulsion Laboratory, Caltech, um, and again other others out there will be upset with me that I didn't <laughs> call out, but you know, the, we're just having a conversation here. So, well, it's not a quiz. So no, yeah. it's not, well, well, yeah, <laughs> but, uh, but apologies aside, um, you look at, look at, uh, the James Webb Space Telescope and, and, and look and what it represents is, is really phenomenal. But the way we build many of those systems, uh, within the government, we build them to be exquisite things. And when you design and build for exquisite, um, it's expensive. You learn a lot, but what you don't do is you. What you don't ever do is you don't scale exquisite things. And if they're really truly exquisite, they're one of a kind. You said one hit wonders or whatever really, but but that is probably a great analogy, right? I mean, they are wonders. That's for right. Sure. Right. And and if we had a rock band and we go, hey, we just had our one hit wonder, I'd be like really, I'd be really scared because because <laughs> those those type of bands don't like endure like the Rolling Stones, right? <laughs> so. We want we want companies in 
in the space industry to to be able to to work on things that they do and what and space companies they don't do exquisite things they develop products they de- develop services and those are things that scale so um uh we're in an age where um i don't have you have you used any of the commercial satcom services with your with your reporting overseas or in remote locations yet? Oh, yes. Yeah. I mean, from day one. Yeah. Absolutely. Back in 2001, I was, you know, humping around a big, heavy piece of plaster or something, ceramic, that I couldn't stand in front of unless I wanted to get irradiated. That's right. Yeah. But you you did that because that was how you connected back to the world and 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 oh it's fantastic yeah it's a fantastic capability but you know but there, there's consequences because you have to move it and and you know, today things are getting even uh easier um you know some of the deployed antennas and the the media and defense have all been using the same commercial technologies for a while and um uh, uh and and the only difference is that maybe we have a different type of encryption on it but but these are excellent tools um where I'm going with this, though, is that the cost of those capabilities have come down over time in a, in a in a nonlinear way, largely because the demand goes up and people buy these things. And, and it should be amazing to anyone, uh, probably not to a 13-year-old, that you can have a supercomputer in your pocket for just a couple hundred dollars. And and that supercomputer is more complex than most of the things we have in space today. So. Uh, uh, but when you produce things at scale and you have that kind of technology, that's 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 really an, an offset of its own. It, it's a um, uh, it's such an enabler, and, and what happens and it it's, it democratizes that technology, so it can it's used in across many different spheres. So that's how you get to a healthy uh, marketplace. So because with your question, uh, what is o- the how overall is our state of our, that's our right. space industrial the, base? Yeah. The global, I'll just, I'll say globally, the commercial, and when we say commercial, we like to say the new space market, right? Which is all these companies have been funded with billions of dollars, probably from around the early 2000s, but really more significantly from about 2010 to today, the last, you know, 15 years, thereabouts. Um, and 15 years is a good window because the private investment, we have about $15 billion that's gone into new space. And and a lot of interesting stuff, uh, SpaceX with the Falcon 9. The most reliable rocket on planet Earth is a commercial rocket. Even more reliable than the most reliable um, uh, Department of Defense rocket, just because of sheer number, the, the numbers of, of launches and things that they've done. And, and, and the reason why they've been able to remove a lot of the risk associated with, with um, spaceflight, uh, of which rockets are the most complex things that we engineering design. There's nothing uh, simple or easy about uh, being a rocket scientist or developing that. But they productized it, right? It's a product. That a Falcon 9 is not an exquisite thing. It's a product. And they don't sell you the rocket. They sell you a service. So so now, if I'm a... Uh, so they, they democratized space. So... Uh, it, it, and the price of getting to space is fallen uh, in the same way that the price of accessing... Um, communications from a beyond the line of sight has fallen over time. And this, this is the wonderful effect that what happens when you take something and you get it into the commercial marketplace. Now, the, the, um, if you remove SpaceX and the things that they've done from the equation, the rest of the uh, commercial new space market is very nascent. Uh, still a lot of early investment, a lot of uh, early stage technologies, things are doing well. 
the 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 clear um, uh, leader in small launch is Rocket Lab, which is a company that DIU has had a relationship with since uh, twenty seventeen, um, and um, and there and there, and there's others, but the uh, but the marketplace is still very nascent, uh, and reason it's nascent is because uh, if we go to back to telecommunications, and if the U.S. government said we're not buying any commercial uh, telecommunications anymore. You know, the, the industry would be like, well, I don't know. I guess we'll just do the... They, they have established commercial markets. Space is not like that yet. The government is an early adopter uh, of, and, and actually a, a, um, a progenitor, if you will, of these commercial space capabilities because the government's not good. The government should never try to do a product or a service. Um, the space transportation system which was really the history of the shuttle, was really envisioned to be a service, but it was a government-led service. Uh, they wouldn't let a private company own or operate a, uh, a space shuttle. In, in retrospect, that was probably a bad decision. But, the, but, but you know, we learned through history, and, um, and I think, uh, thank God for NASA. And the reason why is not because I used to work there, uh, even as a contractor, but because they've been doing meaningful contracts. The, the, uh, the way that we send astronauts into space is through commercial services. NASA, uh, one, an article we put in one of our earlier reports, NASA realized a uh, cost savings of about a billion dollars a year by, by using commercial um, space launch uh, as a transportation mode for, for not just astronauts, but resupplying the International Space Station. And, and we're not paying the Russians anymore uh, to, uh, to help get us there because we have a thriving commercial industry. Uh, the interesting thing about launch is that we actually lost the market. We had a very strong commercial launch market, and uh, a small one, but the uh, uh, U.S. Uh, market share globally, very strong in the 90s, and it went to zero. Yeah. And, and, it, and today, we're back uh, in the hero category, <laughs> not the zero category. So uh, we pro- we, I don't know the, today's numbers, but it, it's, it's, in a very, it's, it's probably in the upper one-third or one quarter of the of the entire global marketplace. So the thing is, if everything was perfect, which we now know it isn't, I mean, it's it's we're in a nascent mm-hmm. sort of stage, except for launch. It's vulnerable. It's vulnerable. Mm-hmm. It's young. Yes, for new space. That's right. Um, so, in your opinion, then, you know, what do you think are the one or two top priorities that the space industrial base? both the commercial and the defense sectors need to tackle. And I imagine that it's going to relate to the theme of this year's conference, which is building enduring advantages in space for security and prosperity. That's right. So what would be the top one or or, or two priorities that you think that really need to receive a a huge amount of focus? One, um, which is really going to just reinforce Something that we've that's really come out of every one of these workshops for the past uh, three years, perhaps four, is the the need for a long term vision, uh, and and um, in our context we like to say a grand strategy. Um, grand strategies are hard, but it, it, to to the to the common person, um, I could pose the question this way: uh, What would you what do you want? Uh, America or the United States to, or the world to look like at the end of the 21st century. What, what's your vision for for how uh, how things are at the end of the 21st century? Do you, and and it, it, we can talk about grand strategies because we don't have one and not a formal one. But maybe one of those things is um, 
the preservation of the international liberal order, which is ba basically that states um, they self determine, um, you know, their um, their Where sovereignty, their, their sovereignty, is the rule. their governance, and and that we recognize states recognize other states and and, and there's rights and there and there a lot of history goes with them, and then and then when we tackle problems like uh, maritime. Um, uh, use the, the use of the commons. We have we have standards for how we do that, so, and and um, and we have a United Nations to help promote the idea that that we need to work out and resolve problems peacefully, um, and we have all these all these things, but part of, but it's also uh, economics. We have a free market economy, not a centrally managed one, um, and it has its it has its uh, strengths and weaknesses, but it's actually not bad. Um, we have, uh, especially in this country, we have uh, a, a democracy where people self-determine, you know, who's going to lead. Um, but mo more importantly, we have other things like uh, climate. Um, we can go carbon neutral, except for the fact that our population keeps increasing and we need more resources to support our population. And, uh, and but we all... Uh, so, the, so we care about climate and we care about the environment. But we also have uh, other things, which is we have opportunities, which is can we get off of planet Earth? Um, one of the things that Jeff Bezos of, of, uh, of um, Amazon has, uh, has uh, it's not the first to say it, but most recent to say it, is wouldn't it be great if we could uh, move heavy industry off into space and then rezone rezone uh, Earth as residential. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, right? But why not? Exactly. Why not have that as the vision? But, and, and, or it's like, uh, or Elon Musk saying, we're gonna, we, need, we need to be a multi-planet species and we're going to start with Mars. And, and you know, uh, right now our grand vision is really uh, the culmination of different things. It's a culmination of sci-fi. It's a culmination of how billionaires are spending their money. But how do we have a, like a whole, a whole of nation vision of what that what that future looks like, and and what do we want it to look like Star Trek, or do we want to look like something uh, else like Star Wars, <laughs> or, or you know, there, and there's a big difference, right? And in terms of, uh, well, one has the force. Well, conflict. <laughs> well, 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 yeah. And, and unfortunately, you know, we probably won't figure out the the force, you know, you know, in, in this universe, <laughs> but but the. But it, but this, it's really the thing is, how do you architect the future that you want, and make it inclusive, and and and, and do it in such a way so all of humanity, even China, even Russia, even Iran, all the others can say, I you know I can subscribe to that, and, and I th I think it's China is actually a master for uh, five millennia or thereabouts at, at long range long term strategy. And then slowly, meticulously trying to work and achieve it. So, I, so I think if we want to compete um, uh, in that sense, we should have a, a grand strategy. And what we've started with with the report is uh, because it, it brings everybody together in a way that we can communicate it outside of the science and technology crowd is economic development and human settlement in space. Economic development because when you create jobs, you create industry, you create wealth. Um, it's a great way to to lift uh, human spirit and enable other things like.
the difficulties of well, how exactly do we do we uh, live on on Mars or or bring resources or do that heavy industrialization in Earth orbit so we're not polluting our environment. Um, uh, one of, and and those are long term visions, but if you have a long term goal, just the wicked problem, just and this is how DIU solves problems. We talked about this. We don't have a step by step by step by step by step. What we do is we create a window of opportunity. We give people uh, a wide berth to innovate and to create and and pivot and find. It, it's not a direct path. It's going to be a, a serpentine path of discovery that gets us to these places. And what you do there is is you really enlighten. I and mean, there's so many things in the world today that just they're just uh, uh, Debbie Downers. You know, just be a, uh, I, I know your history with CBS News, but you know some. I like, you know what I like with CBS? I like the Sunday morning program because it's like you turn it on and it's like the best, it's the best of things. But, you know, the news is really, the, the news is... The news is, is tough. The news is tough. And what's newsworthy is often like the most miserable things. And, and, and I, think we, I think our society has PTSD from it, quite frankly. This is my personal opinion, not, not my DOD self. But... Uh, but you know, we need to we need to have a balanced uh, a, a balanced portfolio of truth uh, and you know yes there there are inequities and crimes and things like that but there's also all this brilliant stuff that's going on in not just all in the United States uh, that's really going to uh, save save the day and chart us on this this uh, unexplored path to an outcome that that's really you know uh, people could almost be religious about it right and say because it's like i'm i'm not just leaving something behind for the next generation but for several generations how how, how does one become the greatest generation uh and it shouldn't be because of of conflict it should be because uh that we prevent conflict and we and we create a better world uh for the future i, I and you will find that everybody uh, in the profession of arms where i work really truly believes that you know we want we're in a profession of peace and and it's much better to spend our nation's uh, wealth on achieving long-term visions than fighting fighting wars and so and a great way to mitigate conflict is to is to help gravitate uh, people uh, around the planet around common themes and space space is not only a great Bipartisan topic, <laughs> which yes. I have like great support. But if you go anywhere, great schools in China, everybody wants to be an astronaut, you know, and uh, and and or, or they have aspirations. They they're just enamored by by what the opportunities that space will offer us one day. So I think the I think that's um, um, that that would be the one biggie is that grand vision. And um, well, let me follow up with this. Sure. And maybe, you know, after just hearing this answer, this this could be a bit tough, but what is your passion? What is your passion in the space domain, for the space domain? Mm-hmm. What do you want to see developed or, or and or deployed? I want to see, um, I want to see progress and meaningful progress and, and, and really innovation. And let me... Uh, well, it's this real is very general, important. General. Well, well, but it, it is. But let me explain something because because uh, the path we take, uh, 
Um, most people, when they think innovation, they conflate it with invention. And invention is, is different. Invention is when you do research and development and you, and you learn something or you develop a new idea or you develop a new uh, capability or you make a capability even better, right? And, uh, and so in a Department of Defense, we, we are very good at, at research and development and we have teams like DARPA, we talked about them earlier, just, you know, huge legacy. But, but then, and, and then we have, um, we have an industrial base and we have a means to buy uh, commercial capabilities. But between those two is this thing we recognize as the valley of death, and you've heard this term before. The valley of death is where all good ideas, not all, but most good ideas actually go to, to perish because they, there's no bridge. There's no bridge. There's no economic bridge to make sure that over, it, that over it keeps into, living. Right, over to where you actually have, I can't, I can't even remember how many DARPA technologies are in the smartphone. The innovation of the smartphone uh, was aggregating all those technologies to create something that was better than an, um, an iPod you know, for music, right? <laughs> so, right? So the, um, and that's something that the marketplace does really well, products, services that scale. So in between you have this valley of death. And the valley of death is really what innovation is for. Innovation is, uh, I use the smartphone as a great example. Innovation happens because um, entrepreneurs, uh, other inventors or uh, other smart business people solve a wicked problem by aggregating technologies and fielding a product or a solution, an outcome. There's, there's actually there's something that's, that results uh, from, from that, that, uh, that integration. That thing. And, and places like Silicon Valley specialize in this. So Silicon Valley is not a place where you go to invent. It's a place where you go to innovate. And and the market the the market rewards innovators that can take ideas and turn them into um, into products and services that scale, and so so that's that's what we do and 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 and, uh, and and it's different because we we have big pots of money for research and development we have big pots of money for acquisition and we have itty bitty teeny tiny pots of money for innovation, and we need to figure out how to balance our portfolio out not just in the defense sector, but across all of government, across industry. So what we do is we become as agile as the software companies with the development of hardware. You know what, when you become agile and innovative, those long-term targets, are you, you, the time to achieve them gets closer. And so, so, uh, so every day that we go to work, if we look at a long-term target like, well, uh, one of my favorite ones, my absolute favorite one right now, space internet, space internet, or uh, it, it, which uh, which uh, is what? Explain what, what is space internet? Well, it's it's also being referred to as the outer net, and it's not our place in government to decide what the names are. But everything we have in space today is actually a proprietary uh, standalone system. Nothing in space talks with each other. When if you need two things in space to talk with each other, it's done through the ground. Right, and you know this. How many? Uh, it doesn't matter if it's a Super Bowl. It doesn't matter uh, any of the big newsworthy things that you've deployed to over your career. When you step out in a parking lot, what do you see? An ocean of satellite antennas. Yep. And they're and they're all individually talking to different things, because we do all that integration on the ground. What if what if you had a 
uh, a hybrid ground terminal uh, in your bag of tricks, in your purse, or your backpack as you're doing your reporting around the globe. And you said, I don't want to, I don't, I can't do my job by just talking to Satellite X. Um, I want to have secured, assured, multi-path, uh, low latency communications that connects me to everything. So, um, and I don't know if you're actually connected to the internet right now, but uh, but you're, if you are, you're either doing it through the Wi-Fi in the hotel or a nearby cell phone tower, and uh, or a nearby cell phone or a nearby cell phone, and and actually, and we just take that completely for granted today. We the fact that you can j- jump in a, in a car or have uh, continuous internet access on an airplane is like that's like. It seems like just trivial to anybody who's a millennial today, but but uh, that's like really fascinating, and and that technology enables us to do that, and and it and it and it those are disruptive things that really change the way that we the world's become smaller because of all this uh, technology. But uh, so for space, for space, for the outer web, for the outer uh, outer net or the outer web, or uh, I think they'll have some other spiffy uh, name for it. Hopefully not Skynet. <laughs> oh yeah, really. <laughs> but uh, but for for that uh, right now, if you use a, a commercial satellite to take a picture uh, of anything, and 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 um, uh, let's say that you let's say for your business, you need to know how many cars are in, in the parking lot of your shopping mall, and you want to know right now because you're because that's a competitive advantage uh, for for maybe an investment. Um, what you're going to do that the satellite's going to take the picture, but then you have to wait until that satellite gets somewhere else around the globe where it, it overflies a ground station and it downloads that information, and then it goes back through fiber, uh, through the internet, uh, or back, even back, back to, up to another satellite. True, even that's right. And so it's everything we do today involving space has a latency or some sort of time lag before what you did, and and if you say well. I need to ask the satellite to do that, take that picture because it's not a deliberately planned um, collection, but it's it's an emergent one. Well, there, the latency works both ways. So, well, what if you could remove all the latency? What if you could? What if? What if satellites, instead of being exquisite things, are cell phone towers? And and the and the funny thing is, they're not fixed cell phone towers. Some of them roam <laughs> in Leo. Some of them are fixed up in geostationary orbit. And there's other orbits in between. But if we can interconnect all those uh, and, and actually uh, achieve uh, an internet of, of things, then, then you have all the benefit uh, of how you use the internet terrestrially. So, um, and the real magic economically behind uh, the internet on the ground is that we have a mobile telecommunications infrastructure where all the companies basically share in the same marketplace and they all benefit they they recognize there's better and more business to be had by having an integrated network than to have a bunch of proprietary standalone ones so if you care about the space economy which is what we care about and say what's really going to be the light switch that takes the nascent commercial new space economy and turns it on and and it, and it grows and becomes something big it's going to be the the hybrid uh, hybridization or, or of the of existing and new things, or creating an Internet of Things in space, 
where where you can uh, you can exchange information horizontally, vertically, and so on. And the benefit now is you're res- less reliant on all the fiber technology and the ground stations, and um, and you you get answers immediately. So um, if you're, uh, I remember a few years ago when we looked at t- uh, telecommunications globally, um, the investors in Wall Street actually helped finance new fiber optic cable that went over to Europe to get, I think it was like a 15 microsecond advantage, but just by laying new cable. And and so real real decisions in our economy are made because... Uh, and real and decisions in our security. Because, exactly. So you have the advantage of, of uh, time. And what when you reduce latency in communications, what do you do? You get information dominance. Yeah, exactly. And, and you achieve it because you have early indications and warning of, of anomalies. I'll just put it like that, right? And that, that anomaly could be a tsunami, yeah. right? It could, be a, it could be a natural disaster, but it could also be a, 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 um, a human-related uh, uh, disaster. So like a, a mobile missile uh, uh, or a crisis or, or anything like this. So the earlier we have uh, information then two things happen. One is we have better situational awareness about what, what's really going on at a distance, and we have more time to make decisions. And uh, I actually, I think one of the uh, enduring things, at least over the last 30 years, but when the, when the wall fell and the Soviet Union collapsed, and even though we didn't really have fewer nuclear weapons, but, but, but people were very, you know, uh, People stop really worrying about the temperature of conflict rising to a nuclear full on nuclear war, which is a really bad thing. Um, and then, and then, and then we've spent a lot of time and effort to make sure that and develop policy and other things, treaties for nuclear non-proliferation to make sure that nuclear capabilities don't fall in the hands of of uh, crazy people, uh, bad, but the bad guys, right? Yeah, uh, or people, crazy people, pe- people who would do harm, right? Yeah. But I, but but the uh, the thing is is now you know uh, that's another technology that that is is being democratized and and I don't know that we can stop it, but what we can do is we can we can use some of these capabilities just as you said it'd be like the information dominance is not just that the United States knows but the whole world knows and we achieved that last year before Russia invaded Ukraine because the commercial. Uh, remote sensing satellites that image the planet every day in lots of different parts of the spectrum. It's unclassified information. And who subscribes to it? Well, uh, governments subscribe to it. Commercial companies subscribe to it. Media media subscribes subscribes to it. it. And so the storytellers had a story to tell. And the story to tell is, look at all all this buildup, right? And, And the wonderful thing about that is that the gov- if the government if the government came out and said, well, we can't show any pictures because you know we have very specialized things, but uh, a conflict is rising, people will probably be like, yeah, I don't know, you know, you know, people are a little distrustful sometimes of, of the government. But when when it's when it's out there and, and it's kind of like a Cuban Missile Crisis thing with John F. Kennedy saying, here's the satellite image and look at the things. But now it's it's our it's our free and open media. Uh, globally, not just in the U.S., having access to this information and sharing it, 
it really brought the whole world together in a way that I don't think we could do through diplomacy alone. So, there, so and that's, that's actually another component of that information dominance, is not just that we have the technology, but how we use it. And, and in this case, uh, we didn't prevent uh, the invasion because, you know, uh, uh, you know, that was probably predetermined. But the global response to that activity I don't think anybody. I don't. I don't think anybody uh, uh, to the east of Ukraine would have calculated what what would have what happened and continues to happen. And so, so, and I think that's good because that that all contributes to one of the key tenets of our national defense strategy, which is uh, integrated deterrence. That you know, um, uh, General Milley, our chief of uh, uh, joint chat, uh, joint. Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, he's a really great guy, by the way. But he would, uh, he just most recently, amongst other people in the past, reminded us that um, that war is really expensive activity, and the only thing more expensive than war is losing a war. And he put, he said that in the context of why it's so important that we we invent or not invent, but invest in our deterrence, these deterrent things. And all the deterrents don't have to come out of the, um, the defense industrial base. We need a balanced portfolio of things that are purely defense, uh, and we use them. We use them when we when we, when we have to, but then we have all these commercial capabilities, uh, and they and they don't have to just come from the United States, but actually help to lower the temperature of conflict, help inform people, give us more time to make smart decisions. Um, uh, and, and, and I'm a big believer that, that uh, with all the different apparatus we have, it's, and, and, and even, if, even if we don't avert disaster, but it brings the global community together, that's a good thing. Bucky, thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you. It's, it's been uh, fun and, um, and uh, it's nice having this conversation. I hope we have another one in the future. So. We definitely will. Okay. That's it for this week. If you like what you're hearing, follow the downlink on Twitter and subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. For the latest defense news and analysis, listen to the Daily Defense and Aerospace Report podcast hosted by Vago Meradian and listen to Kavis Ships to hear the latest on what's happening in the maritime domain. I'm Laura Winter, and thank you for listening. Thank you.